go ahead and open to First John. First John chapter three, starting in verse four. First John chapter three, four. Whoever commits sin also commits lawlessness. And sin is lawlessness. And you know that he was manifested to take away our sins, and in him there is no sin. Whoever abides in him does not sin. Whoever sins has neither seen him nor known him. Little children, let no one deceive you. He who practices righteousness is righteous, just as he is righteous. He who sins is of the devil, for the devil has sinned from the beginning. For this purpose the Son of God was manifested, that he might destroy the works of the devil. Whoever has been born of God does not sin, for his seed remains in him, and he cannot sin, because he has been born of God. In this the children of God and the children of the devil are manifest. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God nor is he who does not love his brother. Let's pray. Lord, right now I am keenly aware that apart from the work of your Spirit, we have nothing. We are like the valley of dry bones coming to seek you So, Lord, apart from your Spirit right now working within us, we have no assurance. We have no hope. We have no conviction. So, God, I pray by your grace, for your glory, that you would do that, that we would be attentive to your word, not overcome by our guilt and our shame, but that we would find the assurance that you extend to your children today. Grace us with this, we ask, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. So the last couple of weeks, we've been, we've been studying the doctrine of adoption. And we looked at last week the fact that we were children of God now in this present moment, and that one day we will be children of God ultimately. And John is launching kind of into a new section. Those, those first three verses of chapter 3, He's really kind of saying, like, this is, this is who you are. This is what you will be. This is what you're becoming. This is how to get there. But then he kind of takes a shift, and he says, okay, this is who you are. This is what you will be. But now he says, let's see some evidence behind that. This week we're going to look at, so he, he gives three different cases of evidence. This week we're going to look at one of them. Uh, the first one is sin and righteousness. Next week we'll look at, or maybe two weeks from now, love and hatred, and then truth and error. But this one, the contrast is very clear. It's the evidence of sin and righteousness. But as I was thinking about this this message today, there was a, I don't know if you call it a reality or just something that we experience, I think, um, as just people living in the 21st century. And I, I think it's no exaggeration to say that we live in a world that loves to blame other things. Everywhere you turn, the motto is, and even though people will never say it, never take responsibility, only just find someone else to blame. 
And we see it even in our own life. Like, this is not something outside of us. This is not something that, like, oh, just look at, look at what the left's doing. Look, they blame everybody. Look, look at what the right's doing. They blame everybody. That's, that's not what we're talking about. Let's take it more home. We blame everybody. A father struggling to fix a broken toy. He erupts with a triad of profanity, slams the toy on the floor, and blames the child for breaking it. Or a mother who comes home from, the work, from work on a Friday afternoon and explodes when she sees a messy entryway and hears music blaring. She grounds her teenage children for the weekend and insists they clean, clean, clean the entire house. Why? Because it's their fault. It's someone else's fault. And I could, we could literally just go on, all of us, I think we could all bring our own stories and say, listen to how I blame this person this week or this thing or that thing. But even more problematic, this idea of blame... What it does is it affects our walk with God. And it's even more destructive, actually, when we take something like a toy or something silly, it's easy to say, okay, we can blame someone else, but what about something more significant, like sin? I only sin in this way because of my circumstances in life. I had a family who never really loved me. Have you heard that before? Or I've been really struggling this past week because the devil made me do it. As long as blame is being shifted onto someone else, then we will never examine our own life. As long as the blame game is being played, truly experiencing the joy of assurance will never occur. So if you're taking notes today, I want you to see this one thing. It's that first paragraph at the top of your notes. It's that since everyone who is born of God will be holy, here's the exhortation, examine your life for holiness. So that, for this purpose, so that you may experience the assurance that you are a child of God. We're going to be looking, I would really encourage you, I don't know if you have maybe an app on your phone. We're going to be kind of flipping back and forth today between the New King James. It'll be on the screen too, the New King James and the ESV. Uh, but, so look at verse 4 of, of chapter 3. He says, whoever commits sin also commits lawlessness. And sin is lawlessness. Now look at the ESV, if you, if you have it, or it should be on the screen, I think. I just want to make sure it's up there, because it's a very big distinction. And it's not that the New King James doesn't translate it right, it's just that I think the ESV does a little better of a job. It says, everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. So sin is lawlessness. And we're going to look at verse 4 and verse 8 as sin being lawlessness. But look down at verse 4. He says, whoever commits sin also commits lawlessness. And John is about to tell us what it is to sin, what sin does, why sin is, where sin comes from, how sin is conquered. But he starts by defining it. And he says, sin is lawlessness. So the question is, what is lawlessness? The word John uses here for lawlessness means those who despise the law. Those who have a disposition toward rejecting God and his rule over their life. And what he does is he equates yours and my sin to this lawlessness. He equates sin with a disregard to God's ways. Again, the ESV, I just, I think it's, yeah, it's up there now. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning. So, so let's just be clear. The New King James, it will say, uh, whoever commits sin also commits lawlessness, and lawlessness is sin. Okay, but the ESV does the exact same thing, but it says everyone who makes a practice of sinning. So it's showing this, it's not just saying, oops, I, I, I sinned once. 
That's not what this he's talking about here. He's talking about a, a practice. I would describe it like this. It's the direction of your life. The direction of your life. Which is a fundamental difference than I sinned today. That's a fundamental difference than this is my life. My entire life is marked by sin. The kind of sin and lawlessness that John has in mind here is not a simple one-time act. He is emphasizing the ongoing nature of sin. As one commentator, I loved how he said it. He said it's characterized by willful, habitual action. And he's referring not to just occasional action, acts, but a lifestyle, a lifestyle of sin. And we've got to remember what the scripture says in other places when it says that sin is anything that's not done in faith. Think about that. Sin is anything that's not done in faith. It is a habit of sinning which gives no regard to God. Now, you may say, well, Daniel, I thought, I've heard you say before, we're not under the law anymore, which I've said that. Why would John be talking about lawlessness then? What could he be meaning? We, we can say for sure that John does not mean the Mosaic law. Okay, when he, when he says lawlessness... And he says, a disregard to the law. He's not referring to the Mosaic law, which is like three quarters of our Bible. That's not what he's referring to. He does not have in mind here the food laws, the ceremonial laws. That's not what he's talking about. But as Paul would say later, he says, bear one another's burden. This is the law I think he has in mind. So and so fulfill the law of Christ. So Paul knows that there is no longer, we are no longer bound by the Old Testament law, but he says we are still bound by the law of Christ. Or in another place, I think a better distinction or a clearer distinction of what is the law of Christ then is what Jesus actually says is the summarization of the entire Old Testament. All the laws. He says this, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And the second is like it, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all of the law and the prophets. And what he's saying here, I think what John is saying, is he's saying that this lawlessness is a lawlessness against this command to love like like Jesus has loved. This This is the law of God. Therefore, being lawless means living the kind of life that tramples these commands. Sin is loving the things God created more than loving God. I think there's a slide for that. I just want to make sure that's in front of you. Yeah. Sin is loving the things God created more than loving God. And sin is loving oneself more than loving others. So the question then is how do we measure the direction of one's life? I want you to think about, maybe for a second, think about your life a week ago. How about a month ago? How about a year ago? How about 10 years ago? When we think about the direction of our lives, we need to measure it in the same way we would measure the growth of a tree, which is, which is encompassed in many rings that show over time that there's growth. And what John is saying here when he says everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness, sin is lawlessness, what he's saying is that tree, it hasn't grown. That tree hasn't grown at all. If anything, that tree is rotting in upon itself. The rings, rather than growing slowly maybe even, they're shrinking and rotting in upon themselves. 
John is addressing here an indifference to sin, which is likely what the Gnostics held. I love what one guy said. He said, you can no more be indifferent to sin than you can be indifferent to a rattlesnake being in your house. They had an indifference to sin, and John is trying to get them to see, no, 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 no. That is not the way it's supposed to be. And I think we can be very similar to this, to this indifference. Charles Spurgeon, I love how he said, he made the observation that we sometimes mistakenly judge the gravity of sin more than the consequences of it. Rather, what he's saying is we should not judge the weight of our sin by the damage it does, which is how we often view it. We say, well, our sin, you know, that sin, it wasn't that bad because it really didn't affect anybody. But he says we need to see that our problem is the sin itself, not the result of sin. So do you see where this blame shifting can come in? We sin, we, we, we rebel against God, and what we do is we say, oh, the devil made me do it, or this person made me do it, or this thing made me do it. And it looks at the consequences rather than the thing itself, which is sin, which is the problem. Now the believer, the true Christian, knows this. He, he, doesn't, he knows he isn't a good person. And they know this, as Romans 4 says, blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Or like we were going to look at last week in Titus 2, it says, for the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously, godly in the present age, looking for the blessed hope and the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. And here it is who gave himself for us, that he might redeem us from every lawless deed and purify for himself his own special people. And John is just trying to throw us in the bathtub, throw us in the cold bathtub of there is no indifference to wickedness and rebellion. And then he goes on and he defines in verse 8. Jump down with me to verse 8. So in verse 4, he shows what sin is. Now he's going to show us the origin of sin. What's the origin? And he says in verse 8, he who sins, okay, let's be clear. He who sins, that means the person. The person who sins is of the devil. For the devil has sinned from the beginning. Doesn't it make sense then? When we turn on the news and we see the wickedness all around us, why things are the way they are. Christians, I've heard so many Christians, so many Christians say, I don't know why this is happening. I don't know why it's this way. This is why it's this way. Because he who sins is of the devil, for the devil has sinned from the beginning. Now he's showing us the origins of sin and lawlessness. John is likely addressing this kind of no big deal. It's no big deal approach to sin in the community. And he's seeking to remind us to surprise his readers by this striking statement. I love, again, how the ESV renders it. He says, it says, whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The one who continues in sin is the one who's showing who he is, after fo- who he's following after. I love what Jesus says how, when he is confronted with the Jewish religious leaders, what he says to them. He says in John eight forty four. it should be up on the screen. 
you are of your father the devil. And your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning. By the way, in this moment, they were trying to murder him. And does not stand in the truth, because there's no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. So what John is saying here in verse 8, listen to it again. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. And combine that with verse 4, everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness, and sin is lawlessness. And what John is doing is he's like saying, I heard this great example he gave. Just picture it with me, giving a blind man a telescope and telling him, hey, 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 here, sir, look out into the sky and see the stars, see the beauty of the stars. You may put the telescope in the man's hand. You may even point his eye up to the telescope. But he responds to you, I see nothing. And well, his witness is true. He doesn't see anything. But if the blind man goes further and he asserts that because he sees nothing, there's nothing to see, his assertion is untrue and his witness is worthless because he speaks beyond the range of his capacity. And such is the value of the natural person's opinion when he declares the things concerning God. And this is what John's saying. He's saying the one who practices sin, it's like handing that telescope to a blind man. He can't see because he's not changed from the inside. The question then we should ask, so there's sin and lawlessness. The question we should ask then is how then is this sin conquered? And I want you to see the purposes of Christ in verses 5 and 8. The purposes of Christ. These purposes of why Christ came are critical. They're critical because they determine what we should expect of our Savior. See, here's the thing. If we have expectations of our Savior which are unbiblical, then what can happen very simply is that we start to worship a Savior that's made up in our own imagination. We'll have a happy Jesus and a friendly Jesus, but never a Jesus for who he really is. I am always struck when I ask college students. They'll be wearing a cross around their neck or they'll be having cross earrings, and I'll ask them, have you ever considered, like you're wearing this, or you have a cross tattoo. I love that one when they have a cross tattoo and you just ask them, why do you have that? Or why did Jesus come? And their responses always floor me because it's Jesus came for me to be happy and Jesus came for me to be healthy or Jesus came for X, Y, and Z. And we all know that's not true. So we need to see the purposes that John lays out here. And he says the first one in verse 5, and you know that he was manifested, or became clear, or was revealed to take away our sins. In him there is no sin. So there's the first purpose, to take away sin. So this is not just something that evangelicals have made up in the last century. This is something that John, from the first century, is saying, this is why Jesus appeared. This is why Jesus was revealed. This is why Jesus was incarnate. Jesus came to remove sins from us. And that act of removing is not a removal, just moving it from here to there. It is a forceful removing of the sin. The one who removes the sin must himself also be sinless which is what he goes on to say, and in him there is no sin. And we, like John, then begin to hear, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. 
And here is the simple implication for this. Since everyone who's born of God will be holy, examine your life. Here's the implication. If Jesus has removed sin from the lives of believers, how could anyone give place to it in their lives? If Christ has taken away our sins by his perfect life, then how on earth could we continue to walk in it? But there's another purpose. He goes on and he says, for this purpose, verse 8, For this purpose, the Son of God was manifested, that he might destroy the works of the devil. So there's the second one, to destroy the works of the devil. Jesus doesn't just deal with the object of sin itself. He deals with its very origins. John's point is that sin is not merely connected with the devil, but it originates from him. It is from the devil that sinning itself began from its origins. I love then what Jesus in the Gospels, in in Matthew 12, he just gets done casting out a demon. Jesus is walking along, casts out a demon. And you know what they say to him? Oh, he's casting demons out by Beelzebub. This is what Jesus says to them. Every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and no city or house divided against itself will stand. So he's saying, that's not true. If I'm, def- if I'm casting them out by Beelzebub, he can't do it. Satan's kingdom would fall. But he says, and if I cast out demons by Beelzebub, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore, they will be your judges. And he goes on and he says, but if it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. And then he gives a better example. This is what I want us to see. This is what it means to destroy the works of the devil. And he says in verse 29, Or how can someone enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man? Then indeed he may plunder his house. And what Jesus is saying is that Jesus is the one who has bound Satan in that way. I love what one commentator said. He said, Satan truly is the defeated foe. His power over unbelievers still is great. Because the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. He can take them captive by his will, yet it is no longer true of the believer. Thus the Christian, by God's grace, can overcome evil and is exhorted to do so. See, here's the thing. This is why I started with the blame. I am fearful that the way we think about our sin and the way we think about the devil's activity in this world comes from a position of defeat. And I, I, I tremble as I say that. And I, because we need to recognize what John is saying here in verse 8. Is he's saying that the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. And I think what we often do is we glorify the works of the devil. I mean that rather than realizing the victory that God has purchased for us in Christ Jesus, we wallow in defeat. Here's the thing. It's good for the church of Jesus Christ to confess her sins to one another. We need to do that. But we must never confess our sins to one another in such a way that is wallowing in sin. And it sounds like this. Okay, I I screwed up this week. But you know what? I don't have the ability to walk in obedience. Demon possession or demon oppression can oftentimes be a ready-made cop-out for personal responsibility. 
The devil made me do it. The devil made me lash out in anger at my spouse. The devil made me fearful of this situation. And wallowing in our own self-absorption can lead anyone to believe things out of suspicion, fear, or convenient excuse. And what I want you to see is with this next point. This next point, it is so important. I think we're going to do another sermon on it next week because it is just critically important. It's the power of sin versus the presence of sin. It's the power of sin versus the presence of sin. Listen to what he says in verse 6. And again, you can kind of see how, how it's best laid out. I think I found it's best laid out that way when we get to first, verse 4, verse 8, verse 5, verse 8, verse 6, then 9. Um, but in verse 6 he says, Whoever abides in him does not sin. Whoever sins has neither seen him or known him. And again, I, I like how the ESV renders it. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. So again, it's showing the nature of continuing in sin. And I want you to see this first point, this, the, the power of sin. This verse is explicitly driving home in the, the idea that a believer does not live in a practice of sin. The Christian's heart, when a person becomes a Christian, they move from not caring about the things of God to caring about the things of God. The Christian's heart moves from not giving a rip to setting his heart on pleasing God. And in this present age, we are called to resist Satan by faith in the triumph over him that he's accomplished and assured in Jesus. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. And the reason he can say that is over the life of the believer, there is no longer a title of sinner. That God has broke the power of sin ultimately in our lives. And Paul teaches this in Romans 6. He says, now if we died with Christ... We believe that we shall live with him, knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, dies no more. Death no longer has dominion over him. And in the same way, brothers and sisters, death no longer has dominion over us. Sin no longer has dominion over us. There has been a once-for-all, final breaking away of sin in our lives. But here's the distinction. So that's the power of sin being broken. Praise be to God that he's done that. But then we live in this world, this already, of the presence of sin. And the distinction is this. Whoever has been born of God has had the power of sin over their lives broken. The power is broken, but here's the thing. The presence remains. No one born of God, verse 9, this is what he says. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning. For God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he's been born of God. And John is referring to the fact that the divine nature has come to us by means of a new birth. The new birth which has taken place in our hearts, if you're a Christian, prohibits a lifestyle of sin. Now let me be clear, there may be a season of sin. There may be seasons of, of seeing, wow, look how far I fell but they're not ultimate. They don't last forever. Why? Because the guarantee of our inheritance, the, uh, the, the Holy Spirit has sealed us by His promise. 
It is those who've trusted and believed on Christ that have received the seal of the Holy Spirit. The down payment that sin has been removed, that the power of Satan over your life has been broken. And the power of sin no longer has hold over your life. You know, I used to play football. I, like, I love football. I love the game of football. When I was in high school, people were often surprised by this, how short I am. But I used to play offensive lineman, and I loved it. It was a great position. My job was very simple, though. I love linemen because their jobs are not complicated. Your job is to not let that person touch the guy behind you. That's it. That's all it is. We would block, we would push, we would shove like any good lineman does. But on occasion, there's one particular instance I'm thinking about, I would get beat, is what we would call it, where the guy in front of me would embarrass me, and he would get past me and make me look very silly. And if you don't know football language, what that means is the other guy made me look really silly, and I would fall on the ground, and he would get the tackle, and my team would be like, Daniel, what are you doing? But even if I missed a block, what I would do is I would go back into the huddle. I didn't say, well, I'm, I guess I'm done with football. I would get back in the huddle, and we would run another play. Now, thankfully, missing the block for me was not a norm, okay? So I was a lineman, but it wasn't the norm that I missed a block. It was rather the exception. And friends, that's the way it is in the Christian life. Sin is the exception. It is never the rule of the day. If sin is the rule rather than the exception, number one, I would have been a terrible lineman. And number two, in the, in the Christian life, you'd be not a Christian if the rule was just, you know what, I see you coming at me, I'm not even trying to fight against you, I'm just, oh, I can't, I can't beat you, you've already overcome me. If sin is the rule rather than the exception, you have not been born of God. Since everyone who's born of God will be holy, we are called to examine our life for holiness. And brothers and sisters, when we do, we experience the assurance that we are the children of God. So what is the evidence? How do we know? How do we really know if we've been born of God? And he tells us. He goes on and he tells us. And it's under this section of, who is your daddy? That's the question. Who is your father? Listen to what he says in verse 7. Little children, let no one deceive you. He who practices righteousness is righteous, just as he is righteous. John's warning here is that we not be deceived. To be deceived would be to believe that someone were a child of God who does not act like it. To be deceived would be to believe that someone whose direction of their life is toward evil and is actually a child of God. That's deception. I love what one commentator said. He said, We do not attach ourselves to Christ by our own righteous acts, but because we are attached to Christ, we are able to perform righteous acts. We do not make ourselves God's children because we're good, but being the children of God, we can live as His children. I used to grow up, I grew up riding the bus, the same bus that my father rode when I was growing up. And the bus driver that I had was the same bus driver that my father had. He's a very old man. If you can't do the math, that's, he's a very old man. And I would remind him all the time of how old he was. But either way, I got on that bus. I'll never forget it. When I was maybe kindergarten, maybe a little older, as soon as he saw me, you know what he said? He didn't say, oh, hey, Daniel, how are you doing? He said, 
hi, little Tim. Now let me ask you, why did he say, hey, little Tim? Did I get on the bus and say, my dad's Tim? No. The thing was, is I got on the bus without even saying anything. He could look at me and say, I know exactly whose son you are. And brothers and sisters, it's the same thing in the Christian life. That we should be able to look at one another and say, I know exactly whose father you are. I know exactly whose son you are, and you're not a son. If we look at believers and we say the practice of your life or the direction of your life, you're so characterized by sin, we don't say, oh, look, you're a child of God. No, that's deception. It would be easy for me to say, don't, don't examine your life. Don't, don't do that. Just accept that you're a child of God. But that's deception. And I know that some of you in here will be very overly conscious of your own sin. And this overly consciousness of your sin will produce a lack of confidence. And if you, like, I believe you really maybe be a child of God, but you'll say, well, Daniel keeps talking about this, and I see this area, maybe this pattern of sin I've had in my life. I just want to encourage you that the Spirit of God working in you, like he says in verse 7, little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. That's not meant to condemn you. That's meant to encourage you. So if you find yourself, if you see, hey, you know what, 10 years ago, I would have responded differently. Be encouraged. Let the Spirit of God in you build you up and lift you up and see that I'm not who I once was, but praise be to God. That I'm not who I once was, but praise be to God, he's still working in me. But here's the alternative. It's children of the devil. So the first one was children of God. Here's the children of the devil. And he says this, and by this, by this, it is evident who are the children of God And who are the children of the devil? So John's not trying to pull punches here. He's not trying to say, oh, it's a mystery. We really don't know. He's saying, we know. It's very obvious. Here's the the test. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. When someone is lacking righteousness and is lacking love for their brothers, they will lack assurance. And John is saying that the direction of a person's life shows where they are born from. So brothers and sisters, my encouragement to you today is to examine your life for holiness so that you may experience the assurance that comes from being a child of God. And next week, I want us to look at, we're going to look at, I think, next week, is, is deeper, a deeper understanding of this distinction between the power of sin over our lives and the presence of sin in our lives. But in the meantime, ask the question, who is your daddy? Who is your father? That you may see that you are a child of God, and because you are, have great assurance. And if you see, maybe you're looking and you're like, you know what, Daniel? I don't love the things of God. You can respond. You can, you can repent. You can turn back to Christ. You can turn to Christ for the first time. Let's just take a minute and respond to the Lord. If there be anything um, between you and him, I just encourage you to, to respond and to do what this is saying. Examine your life for holiness that you may experience the joy that it is to be a child of God. Just take a minute and respond before the Lord.
know that in this room, there will be those who hear me who really are your children. But through maybe sin that they're experiencing or maybe situations in their life, uh, God, they're going to be really discouraged. So Lord, as we consider, as we think about those who are struggling to respond, give them the grace, I ask right now, to respond in faith. And to know that the very fact that they hate their sin is evidence of whom they have been born. And Lord, for those who maybe don't hate their sin, they're fine with the rattlesnake sitting in their house. God, may you in your mercy draw them unto yourself. Show them who you are. Make them to be your child, we pray. Lord, as we consider, as we examine our lives this week, I pray that we would experience the joy of the assurance that we are your children. May we know the depth and the beauty of the gospel. May we see the height and the length and the breadth to know the surpassing knowledge that it is to know that Christ Jesus is our Lord. May you fulfill that in us. May you do that, I ask, in us as your people. For this is our prayer. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.